So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Oh, I don't, I, I've lost track, David, as to how many episodes we've done under quarantine. Uh, it feels like uh, we've lived about three years in two months or so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, quite a few, actually. I miss, I miss getting to know uh, what you look like. Do you still look the same? No, no, no. You're kidding. <laughs> I have hit my target weight of 150. I'm down. Good Lord. In, the, oh, yeah. Amid quarantine, you have managed to stay with the program. That's awesome. You may awesome. not recognize me, man. Oh, Lord. Okay. All right. Well, I can't wait. <laughs> well, I hate that our routine is, you know, our routine now for the last 18 months at least, a couple of years, however long we've been doing the podcast, yeah. was that you and I would meet in downtown Franklin on Wednesday morning right. at the Prothy Monkey and spend an hour together or an hour, 90 minutes. And, mm-hmm. and that was our daily, our weekly connection time. Right. And then typically we'd get together again in person, face to face on Thursday right. to record the podcast. Right. All that's gone by the boards. Yeah. We are still doing the podcast, but I haven't seen your freaking face since I know. early <laughs> March, late February. <laughs> We've gone into our bunkers, and oh. uh, I, yeah, I'm ready to I'm ready to face you again and look back and see Rex in the booth waving at us and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thankfully, we are still getting some photographs via social media. And I saw on Facebook this last week, not just your face. In fact, oh, yeah. I don't even know if I saw your face, but I saw a brand new face I hadn't seen before. Yes, there is a new face in our family. Little Peter Jackson McDonald. And uh, we, we call him Jackson. He's my second grandson. And God, you know, here's something so funny, Nate. You know, if you have one grandchild, you can kind of say, oh, I have a grandchild. And uh-huh. people might think you got married at 18 and uh-huh. you, your kid had a child at 18 and you can still pass for 36. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you have two grandchildren, you're grandpa. Yeah. Your ass is old. <laughs> I don't care how you cut it. I don't care how you try to decorate it. You know, you are a grandpa. And it is so fun. Uh, I got to be with him, you know, just for a little bit um, when they brought him home. But I got to stay with Patrick, my older grandson, who is 20 months old. My daughter and her husband, their their children are 20 months apart. And, mm-hmm. and Patrick... Uh, was my project from 5 a.m. Sunday morning until about 
4 p.m. Tuesday afternoon. And so I stayed overnight and we did all this stuff and all this. And I want to tell you, it was it was so fun and so rewarding and so good to see his you know, personality evolve and yeah. all this beauty and all this stuff. But I will tell you, there is a reason why God made it so that younger people have the children. <laughs> because, you know, you when you're chasing a 20-month-old with a fistful of blueberries running toward the living room rug, yeah. <laughs> I got to start jogging. I just, I got to get in shape. This is, if I'm going to, if I'm going to live that life, that is that is not for the faint-hearted, I will tell you. And um, but uh, we had the, the best time. But little Peter Jackson McDonald is here. He's healthy, eight pounds, eleven ounces, and came into the world just uh, beautiful and screaming and kicking. Whoops, and uh, so we are very grateful. So their uh, mom is is healthy, and mom and dad are home with all the kids now. And I, you know. Uh, packed up and and moved on after getting to spend a little bit of time uh, with them and uh, so it's a special thing it's it's a whole new whole new bunch so yeah it's uh but it's great that's awesome well uh, things have started to loosen up a little bit here in Franklin Tennessee uh, up in Nashville in Davidson County where the Infection rates are much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pretty much the lockdown is still in place. I, th- I think things are. I think restrictions are a little bit looser down here in Williamson County, which is why we've gotten a little traffic from up there on the weekends. Yeah, uh, and there are more people on the sidewalks. I still go out for a daily walk at mm-hmm. least once during the day, and I have noticed. Uh, as our listeners, uh, any faithful listeners will know that in addition to re- my uh, recovery from sex addiction. I don't know that I would call this recovery, but I quit drinking a couple of months ago. Yeah. More than 90 days ago now. Yeah. Nobody is counting. I have noticed that I've got this bell that goes off at happy hour when I am downtown. <laughs> uh-huh. And now yeah. that the restaurants are reopened and folks are out uh, in the sidewalk cafes or I can see through the windows man, have I got this voice in the back of my head that's telling me now that I'm really missing something special. Yeah. And I'm getting a a lot of congratulations for having – there you go. Uh, That's my noisy neighbor you're hearing. Um, I didn't hear him. (laughs) You didn't hear it. Okay. (laughs) I'm getting a lot of congratulations from this inner voice for having gone this far and proving my self-control and restraint. I think uh, that inner voice is telling me I have nothing else to prove Mm -hmm. and uh, plenty to gain by going back to my old routine. Mm -hmm. And apparently I had no good reason to quit drinking. Mm -hmm. None that I can recall. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, thankfully, through conversations with friends and times of prayer and meditation, getting into some, uh, you know, healthy reading material. I have not, uh, you know, resumed my uh, drinking career, but gosh darn, if it hasn't been surprisingly challenging in the last, especially the last couple of weeks. Well, you know, it's, what would you tell yeah, me as a guy who talks with common, uh, folks on I a daily think, basis who are trying I, to stop I mean, drinking. I can't tell you, yeah, I can't tell you how many times I thought to myself, um, you know, you have so overreacted. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, yeah, you have just so overreacted to this thing. But uh, but you know, our brains and our bodies respond to uh, memory. You know, and uh, when you're reliving some of those things, there's a there's a romanticized side to addiction, I think. And I'm not I'm not equating your relationship to alcohol with addiction, but I'm just saying that in behaviors, there's a romanticized um, side to it that I think we often forget about. Yeah. You know, um, it's it's like, you know, forgetting why you got divorced. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, like, oh, yeah, now I remember, you know, but um, yeah, it's a little bit like that. Wow. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, David, to uh, look back and wonder, kind of speculate, mm-hmm. uh, try to put the pieces together. What got me on this road? How did this pattern of behavior begin and why has it become so deeply deeply entrenched we have a guest today who has explored those issues in a very eye-opening and creative way uh a fascinating guy a brilliant guy you and i both know him uh listeners uh if you haven't yet met jay stringer you're in for a treat stay with us we'll be back in a moment here on the positive sobriety podcast Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And David, I am so happy and proud to introduce to our audience a guy who I know and love. And I know you've met. You met him at last year's Samson Retreat, uh, Samson Society Fall Retreat. Right. I did. Uh, the, the author, the speaker, the therapist, the all round nice guy, <laughs> Jay Stringer. Yes. Uh, welcome, Jay. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. Ah, uh, and uh, joining us from Seattle or the environs thereof, someplace up there in the upper left hand corner of the country, yeah. Seattle, where I assume you guys are still under social restrictions, quarantining. How's that? How's that going for you up there? <laughs> Uh, we are still under uh, shelter in place until at least uh, the end of May. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow! I, it yeah, really depends on the week. I, I feel like my my hygiene is pretty good Monday through Wednesday because I have to. Be- <laughs> <laughs> and then from Thursday, uh, my hygiene just uh, goes down considerably. So you know, yeah. on Monday morning, I'm washing my face and kind of seeing my face again. For the first <laughs> in a few days, so uh, it, so there have been parts of it that have been lovely, like way more time with my family, uh, way more time to play, uh, but so much just wild disruption in almost every category of life. So uh, it yeah. has been a, a season of a lot of play, uh, but also, I mean, for many of the clients that I work with and just my own life, it, it's also been a season of loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have uh, seen your face a couple times in social media. Uh, unless you've gotten one in the last couple of weeks, it looked as though you were still a couple months short of a haircut. <laughs> <out> some, 
I do. I have I have a hat on today. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's just. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I feel like the haircut for me now it has to be an essential service. <laughs> In the morning, I'm like, my goodness. I think um, you were rocking it pretty well, though, Jay. I think you really ought to uh, consider hanging on to the hanging on to the hair. It's a good look, and yes, especially might, when you're soaking wet on the slippy slide, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I need to update the photo because uh, we, you know, it was a nice kind of northwest forest, and now <laughs> it, 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 it's a jungle. <laughs> <laughs> And and I I can imagine you know you were one of the busiest guys I know there, as the book Unwanted was really getting traction, as the work you were doing with the uh, Heart of Man guys and the online course and all that kind of stuff. I mean I bounced I, I ran into you in Denver and then you know the next week you're someplace else. You were keeping up a very busy counseling practice, thera- therapeutic. Uh, practice there in Seattle, but also traveling. It looked to me like it was a rare weekend when you weren't somewhere. And now all of a sudden, first of all, were my perceptions correct? How how busy was your schedule before this thing hit? Yes, I was uh, quickly gaining higher and higher airline statuses and getting more <laughs> Uh, that that was true, and I, I mean, I think that's part of the the sadness for me of just you know the the book takes some time to kind of get. Uh, I'm a first time author, and so to yeah. get into various networks and hearing, and so yeah, I had some of my kind of biggest church gigs and speaking gigs lined up this spring, and they were all canceled uh, or postponed. And I also have a lot of people that fly into Seattle to do work with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those have dried up as well. So, I mean, like a lot of us uh, just had to make a lot of pivots. And so I've been training therapists, pastors, and coaches to go deeper into their stories over the last six months. That's been my pivot. And I've actually had probably more fun working with leaders uh, to really get them to engage. The the adage of the seminary that I went to and the grad school that I went to was basically you you cannot take anyone further than you have been yourself. Right. So if you are if you don't really know kind of the root of your addictions, what arouses you, what types of places of sabotage that you will find throughout your career. Uh, essentially you're no good to the people that you work with. And so that's been a lot of the emphasis of the trainings that I've been doing with leaders is really getting them to engage their own stories. Uh, so we've done kind of a 10 week uh, unwanted certified guide program. And again, just to underscore, it has been <laughs> so fun. Uh, and those have been over Zoom. Um, so All right. Well, uh, the book, for those of our audience who are unaware of it, the book is Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. And uh, my reaction when I encountered this book, you know, there's no shortage of books these days on uh, sexual addiction or sexually compulsive behavior, addictive behavior and the way out. Um, This was an absolutely paradigm-shifting book, all just dramatically turned the focus of the conversation, brought dazzling new insight mm. for me into the field. Uh, it's, it's a groundbreaking book. Can't recommend it highly enough. I'm really pleased that 
a number of book discussion groups, online book discussion groups centered around this book have been started by guys in the Samson Society. Uh, I'm sure that the the book continues to gain influence, Jay, even as, you know, you're tra- – and maybe – Maybe it's not such a bad thing that you're having to spend all this time developing leaders. Perhaps in the long run, your influence will grow even greater than if you'd been out speaking to crowds yourself these days. Yeah, I think that that's that's a good assessment, Nate. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if you would um, give us a little bit of the backstory. If you could describe kind of the – the story of discovery, how you walk down this path and some, as insights began to coalesce and you started to entertain ideas and arrive at conclusions that were different from those that were being offered by most people in this field. Can you describe a little bit of that process of discovery? What were the pivotal insights? What, what, tip the scales for you? Oh, sure. And Nate, it's such a lovely question. I love how you ask that question. Uh, so I, I would start from a kind of a professional standpoint, and then I'll move into the personal. But from a professional standpoint, uh, the city of Seattle, about a decade ago, started something called the John School, which was essentially a, a program that a lot of cities use across the country for men who get arrested for soliciting women and prostitution. And so I, through you know, a couple conversations, had been brought in to be the sexual addiction therapist for the city of Seattle's John School. And so uh, at the time, uh, I had never worked with a, a sex addict. It's one of those kind of classic fake it till you make it stories, read your, mm-hmm. your Patrick Carnes and some of the other leaders at that time. Uh, And, you know, when I was working with some of these uh, men and hearing their stories, what kept coming more and more into my office was this kind of language of reenactment. And so one example of this would be the very first client that I worked with from one of these John schools uh, basically told me, he said, Jay, you know, don't get me wrong. I definitely enjoy buying sex, even though it's also brought a lot of debris and consequences to my life. Uh, But the most uh, exciting moment for me is not actually having sex. The most exciting moment is trying to cruise around the streets of Seattle in my SUV, trying to lock eyes with women on the streets. Uh, And so I just kind of followed up with him of just, you know, that's a really interesting phrase, uh, cruising on the streets, hoping to lock eyes with someone. And, you know, as a therapist, I'm always interested in kind of where does that story come from? Where, what were the origins of that? Mm -hmm. And he basically told me uh, three quick stories. The first was that uh, some of his earliest memories were waking up in a crib when he was about two or three years old. And he just remembers crying and it being pitch black and no one coming in to kind of comfort him. The second story was uh, he had the flu or chicken pox and essentially remembered you know, his mom and his dad reversing out of the driveway as he's crying next to his nanny, hoping that his parents come back. Uh, And then he told me that he got a Schwinn bicycle when he was in seventh grade. And he said, Jay, I loved that bike. Uh, I loved uh, cruising around my neighborhood, 
just trying to lock eyes with girls in my class or my friend's moms. And so right there was that sense of, whoa, he just used the same language with regard to cruising for prostitution as he did as an adolescent boy cruising in the hopes of finding something of connection. And so most of what I was seeing in the addiction world and, you know, most sobriety 12-step meetings was a lot of just behavioral stuff of, you know, we need to give this over to a higher power. We need to get sober. We need to uh, just basically stop doing what we're doing. Uh, But so many of these men really had no sense of what story they were acting out from. Uh, And so that was really when a lot of that started to coalesce for me of what if our unwanted behaviors, what if our addictions are actually the most honest dimension of our life because they're actually revealing the stories that we need to go back to in order to find and heal. And I would say that was the really major pivot uh, away from You know, whether it's a conservative community that always wants to manage your lust, manage your bad, immoral behaviors, or a more progressive society that always wants you to essentially liberate your behaviors. Um, Part of what I was finding is that, you know, shame management or lust management really wasn't helping people uh, come to an understanding of how their behaviors came to be in the first place. And so that was, you know, a lot of the decision to write this book and to to do research was to say, what if we could just ask people who are struggling with uh, pornography, infidelity, buying sex, uh, essentially any unwanted behavior, what if we could just ask them stories about where they come from? And uh, the hope was that we would get a lot of data uh, that would kind of tell us about their adverse childhood experiences, their relationship with their parents. And then the formative uh, themes that they would find arousing on the internet. Uh, And then basically put all that together and develop some insights. And what I can tell you is that's exactly what we found is that uh, unwanted behaviors are not random at all. They are always direct reflection of the parts of our story that we haven't addressed. Mm, Yeah. Jay, what did you find most surprising about some of the research? What was, I mean, did you have some preconceived ideas that going in that really blew up or was there something that jumped out at you that really uh, surprised you about what people were revealing to you? Sure. Uh, So one of the things that my research looked at was something that we refer to as the arousal template, uh, which is basically just a constellation of images, thoughts, sensations, times of day, relational archetypes that we all find arousing. So uh, some of the leading porn sites uh, throughout the world actually publish all the data of what people are searching for. Uh, So mother-oriented themes are usually in the top five. So this could be a stepmother, a mother I'd like to F. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of kind of, you know, Japanese animation that's kind of rising into the top 10. Uh, I believe it was number one or number two. And so part of what I was wanting to get a sense of is, you know, what if our uh, sexual behaviors and our fantasies and the things that arouse us actually aren't random either? Uh, What if they could be shaped and predicted based on our story? And so that was a lot of what the data found was that 
you know, if you took a classic example of, you know, a man who is looking out for pornography that might delve into mother oriented themes or a boss or basically a female that had some level of power. Uh, what we found about those men is that they had past histories of sexual abuse. Uh, they had a father or a mother who confided in them about the difficulties that they were facing in life. And thirdly, they had higher levels of depression than the rest of the population. And so, again, if you were to just kind of be something of a detective, which I encourage kind of everybody reading my book or just delving into their own matters of unwanted behaviors to just be super curious about uh, why are you drawn to any particular behavior or fantasy? And so with that, you know, particular mother archetype, uh, I think as you begin to get a sense of uh, maybe these men had some past histories of sexual abuse as children with someone older, uh, they had maybe a mother or a father figure confide in them and they were feeling really depressed. Well, what is that man going to seek out in pornography? Well, he's going to seek out an older person to bring comfort to him, uh, to bring goodness to him. And so that is part of what uh, I found really surprising in the research was just how much our stories shape uh, the things that we find arousing. Mm. Wow. I'm wondering if there is influence in the other direction as well, Jay. I know there's a lot of concern expressed these days about the high uh, the 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 violent nature of a high percentage of the online pornography that's available that's downloaded these days, um, uh, and I'm aware of a trend, a common trend within porn users of uh, migra- migrating f- to more and more explicit and perhaps more and more degrading or more violent material in an attempt to recapture the initial high or out of curiosity. Uh, So that, for example, you know, I recently had a conversation with a young man, not yet out of his teens, who is still physically a virgin, who hasn't had sex, but uh, is conditioned to, you know, bondage. That's the stuff, uh, that's the pornography he's been watching. And that is the sexuality that he finds most appealing. I'm wondering if our stories shape our tastes in pornography and and there is, it, if not determinism, at least conditioning in that direction so that you can see a straight line. There are trends. It's discernible. It's, it's understandable. Is there also influence in the opposite direction for those of us who use a, a porn over an extended length of time? Does does what we're seeing on screen in turn uh, influence or shape uh, behavior in the real world? Yes, uh, undeniably. And I think that that's a, that's a great distinction to make as well, is that, uh, you know, there, there was a pretty big research study done, peer-reviewed, to kind of look at the major porn films over the last decade. And basically what they found was that 88 percent or more of the most popular porn films actually contain some level of violence. And so I think that that's one of the big critiques that I have of just the, you know, the addiction community in general is that 
uh, in a lot of faith communities too, is that whenever we begin to engage these things, you'll hear that, you know, this is what men are doing when they are bored, or this is what women are doing when they're just trying to self-medicate. But I think until we really step into one of the appeals to pornography and kind of any form of uh, violent or degrading behavior, one of the major appeals is that it gives you power over another human being. So whether it's COVID-19 and just feeling like I have no traction, I don't like who I am, I don't like what I'm going through in life. Well, one of the appeals to porn is that it gives you exactly what you want when you want it. You get to be something of a God where for the, you know, outside of that one realm of pornography, uh, you're feeling a lot of futility. You don't like who you are. You feel like crap. And yet in the world of pornography, you get unlimited amounts of power to violate another human being. And so I think that's totally what we have to step into is that uh, there, there's something about us that actually does want power in the confluence of the pornography industry, actually creating content that allows us to have more and more levels of power. Uh, it is just uh, astronomical. And so I think pornographers know that. Uh, the bent of all pornography is towards degradation. So it might start with something that looks more innocent, more like a woman who has like a come hither perspective. Uh, but as you begin to progress, you need more loss of innocence. You, you don't just need uh, one person on a webcam. You need that person kind of kneeling before you. And then that's not enough. You actually need to bring in multiple people into a porn scene uh, to see someone degraded. But then that's not even enough. You, you need... Uh, you know, more people, you need more innocent, you need uh, a child at certain points. And so I think as you begin to trace the arc of pornography, uh, it's about humiliation. And but I, we also have to go back to where in our stories have we known humiliation? And how do how does pornography actually appeal to us? Because it gives us the ability to reverse some of those difficult experiences of humiliation that we have known in our real life. And then in the virtual world, we get to develop power over the humiliation through watching someone else absorb that violence. Mm. Jay, would people that uh, men particularly, let's say, who don't feel like they have a voice in their own lives or they feel hypermanaged in their marriages or in their relationships um, is it, is this, is this a reaction to feeling a lack of, imp- of personal empowerment? Yeah, I think it, it totally can be. Uh, you know, one of the things that my research looked at was, uh, let's say that you were uh, a man who is experiencing a, a lack of purpose in your life, meaning you looked at your relationships and just couldn't find any traction. Uh, you uh, didn't really like where your career was going. You looked back over the course of your life and you saw a lot of failure. What we found is that if you did not have a clear sense of uh, you were seven times more likely to pursue uh, pornography. And so I think that that's a, that's a huge uh, dimension of a lot of men's lives is, uh, you know, it's a lot of work 
to engage our partners emotionally, physically. Uh, there's a sense of failure. There's a sense of I don't measure up. Uh, there's a sense of wanting a relationship to go exactly how I want it to go. And pornography creates a world without thorns and thistles for men. Uh, they can get exactly what they want when they want it. And uh, outside of maybe watching Tiger King or The Last Dance, you just can't get exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the, the crazy thing about porn, and I speak here from personal experience, uh, I could very well have been one of your students in John School back in the day, um, is that not only does pornography, let's say for the male user, uh, construct and feed an unrealistic view of women and, uh, you know, sexual conquest, but also uh, does nothing to enhance the confidence of the viewer uh, because, you know, there is just nothing in those films uh, as I remember them that fits with real life. Uh, so I'm going to, so I'm discontent in my real life. I go to virtual life to get some satisfaction and some, uh, you know, some vicarious participation in life only to have my feelings of, uh, of, um, inadequacy reinforced. I'm further weakened, right? Yes, yes, yes. And I mean, just to underscore how important that is, is that our compulsive behaviors are not about self-medication. They return you back to that experience of shame and judgment. Uh, And so that, I think, just has to be underscored is we go to these unwanted behaviors, uh, not merely for escape but also to reinforce all of our core judgments against who we are. So if I don't like who I am, I feel like crap. uh, Well, what am I going to seek out? But a behavior that provides perfect evidence uh, that I need to be indicted for, for that judgment. Mm -hmm. And Jay, would you say that we're as addicted to our shame as we are the, uh, material or the the substance or whatever it is that's taking us back to it yes absolutely and i think both this is one of those both and mm-hmm. times where do we feel shame uh in response to participating in a behavior that we know doesn't bring us into greater beauty absolutely um but do if we don't feel beautiful if there's a sense of i don't like who i am uh, well, all I know is, I mean, I remember, I think it was last summer, two summers ago, there were a lot of forest fires throughout the Pacific Northwest. And uh, just feel, you know, it was 90 degrees, couldn't breathe, feeling terrible. And what did I want to do? Uh, I wanted to overindulge food and smoke cigarettes. It, it made no sense to <laughs> me. other than uh, a cigarette sounds really good because I get to have the choice to be able to get what I want right now. Uh, I'm already immersed in the smoke. So why not actually find more? And I think that's what ends up happening is that when we don't uh, love who we are, we don't appreciate who we are. uh, We compile uh, more and more evidence in the court of law against ourselves. Yeah. I've had clients tell me, I only feel normal when I feel wrong. 
Like when mm-hmm. I feel like there's something wrong or that there, there is something that I'm carrying a regretful feeling emotion about. And therefore I find that I go to that thing in order to medicate that feeling only to feel it again more. Uh, but I, but I'm back to feeling self-loathing, which is my norm. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing of, you know, the work that we do is to really invite people back to their origin stories of where did you really begin to feel uh, unworthy, unwanted? And what you'll begin to hear as you study that path is that a, a lot of times it could be a mother or a father who really shamed you. Uh, it could be Uh, some level of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse that really left you feeling uh, like you didn't measure up or that you participated in something that uh, was really vile. Uh, So a lot of times when this happens for men or for boys and girls is that uh, one of the dimensions of sexual abuse that we don't talk about nearly enough is that Uh, abusers are often so brilliant at trying to introduce uh, their victim to a sense of pleasure or arousal, whether that's through using pornography or through touching a primary or secondary sexual body part, is that, you know, a lot of the response that we feel might be, you know, my abuser actually was more kind to me than my own mother and father were. Uh, And so how does the heart kind of grapple with, uh, on one hand, this person who has abused me is also the same person that uh, played catch with me, uh, who noticed something about my, uh, how, how far I could throw a baseball. Uh, And so I think that that sense of how do we step back into some of those origin stories that convinced us that we were unwanted or unworthy of love? And how did that go on to trace the trajectory of our life uh, is just such a crucial task in the, in the process of healing. You know, Jay, you just bowled me over with a statement you repeated twice during that response. You know, I have, read your book a, a, a dozen times, uh, a, a couple of times and, and referred to it dozens of times. I've recommended it over and over again. And somehow I've always read the title as unwanted, as unwanted behavior, uh, escape from unwanted behavior. I've, I have, uh, <laughs> uh, I've associated that adjective with, with the noun of behavior. And now you're talking about me being unwanted, how that uh, I've been led into this maze and trapped in this behavior. It began back with a feeling of being unwanted personally, Mm -hmm. which takes me back again to loss and shame and grief. And I know at a deep level that there is real truth there. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, that was one of the reasons why, you know, we went with that title was just the, you know, the double entendre of that, where the the behavior is unwanted, uh, but so is the person that after years of an addiction, uh, it, even before the addiction really gets established, uh, so many men and women feel like they are, are really unwanted at the end of the day. So, um, mm-hmm. yes. Wow. Well, I wonder if we could we could pivot toward uh, I, I, first of all, 
as somebody who got sober, sexually sober in 12-step recovery, somebody who appreciates 12-step recovery and has and worked with that full set of old tools to at least get um, uh, abstinence, if not a deep sobriety and serenity. Uh, I liked the way that you kind of really called out in <laughs> pretty stark terms some of the uh, some of the tools that were given, some of the strategies that we were given to deal with unwanted sexual behavior, to snap a, 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 a rubber band or to bounce the eyes, uh, all these you know strategic ways to deal with it. Um, what would you offer now as we kind of turn, this is the positive sobriety podcast. I'm a listener. I know that I have, I have been doing things I don't want to do. So there is unwanted behavior in my life. I also am beginning to sense that behind that behavior is a deep, deep feeling in my gut that I am unwanted. What are the positive steps that I can take now toward a richer, fuller, freer life? Where would you counsel me to start? Yeah, beautiful. Uh, so I, let me let me start with kind of a a statement from one of my friends, mentors, Dan Allender, and he says that all addictions are an effort to kill hope. Uh, and so part of what I think he means by that is that sense of uh, we are hope based creatures, that sense of, you know, if you ever tried to put a beach ball underwater in a pool, well, what is inevitably going to happen is that beach ball keeps rising to the surface. And so I think that's the nature of, you know, why positive sobriety uh, exists is because there is something about the, the human condition that is inevitably trying to rise with hope. Uh, but what addictions do is that they, they kill off that desire that something could actually change uh, with my sexuality. Something could actually change in my relationship. Something could actually change in my career. And so I think we have to be really honest of, you know, it, it's not, the addiction. The addiction is a is a thief of joy, but far more that addiction is in place in everybody's life, so that they don't have to contend with the wild terrain of hope within them. Oh. So it, that's where I would kind of say is as people begin to think about what do you want, what do you actually desire for your life. Uh, you'll start hearing really stunning stories with regard to maybe it's a community, maybe it's a, a marriage, maybe it's a book, maybe it's uh, wanting to create something. And so addiction always steals that sense of creative energy. And so I think at a very basic level, we have to kind of say, well, what do you hope for? Uh, and within that, um, I mean, I'd be curious to know where you all want to go after this, but I, I think about uh, if you were to just imagine a three-legged stool, one leg is the realm of self-care, one leg is the realm of healthy relationships, and then the third realm is that of, uh, of community. And so I think what you know, positive healing and sobriety is, is about is actually developing those three legs. The, those three categories are not... 
uh, menu items that you get to pick and choose of I'm just going to care for myself and avoid relationships. Or you don't just say, well, I have a great therapist and a great community. Therefore, I don't need to care for myself. Mm. You, You need all three. And so I think part of what I started recognizing as clients would come to see me after they had been primarily with addiction therapists or faith-based therapists is that they would come to me and, uh, you know, I'm going to work with a metaphor, but they would bring me into their backyard uh, and they would say, Jay, look, look at my backyard. Uh, There are no weeds anywhere in my backyard. Isn't that great? And, you know, they're sitting there with kind of some addiction roundup spray, uh, just killing everything that attempts to grow. And so just that feedback of, yes, uh, you, you've, you've successfully stopped weeds from coming into your life here and there. Uh, but there, there's nothing. It's all dirt and dust. Uh, what if we actually committed to growing a garden here? And are there going to be weeds to pick in that garden? Absolutely. But it's always in the service of providing nourishment and beauty to your life. And so I think that's the, that's the big pivot that we need to make is that it's not about stopping. It's not about refraining something, but it's about, in a way, developing garden, gardening skills so that we can actually enjoy uh, the life that we are building and growing in relationship to others. Mm. That's a beautiful analogy. Um, I, I wonder, Jay, if you, if you could talk about what people might anticipate experiencing in the disruption of sobriety or letting go of these um, unwanted behaviors, but trusting the process, daring to hope, um, daring to voice, give voice to their dream desires, uh, who they really are, uh, all those kind of things. There's going to be this disruption with that as well. I mean, I would imagine because <laughs> most we don't let go of a, of a thing that hasn't worked, but that we've trusted without experiencing some sort of fear. And, uh, can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So, and this is also essentially part two of my book, which is why do we stay? Um, mm-hmm. So we all have to understand how our how our addictions have come to serve us despite the consequences. And so you're exactly right. You go from you know really wanting to contend with something, uh, and then you remove alcohol or you remove porn or you remove kind of infidelity from a business trip, and then what are you stuck with? Uh, your own madness. Uh, and so I think this is really, you know, part of that sense of how do you work through uh, what we in the field refer to as affect regulation. So that means the ability to monitor and regulate really difficult emotions. And so one neuroscientist, uh, Dan Siegel, kind of world-renowned author, speaker, neuroscientist, just kind of says this really simple and yet eloquent phrase of we need to learn how to name it to tame it. And so what he means by that is that if I'm experiencing anger, if I'm experiencing shame or humiliation, what I need to be able to do is to actually name uh, that emotion, that feeling. And then what he says is that the moment that we name our emotional life, uh, our brain basically secretes these really soothing neurotransmitters down into our limbic system that basically says that we are going to be okay. Uh, and so I think that's that's a big process of the initial fra- 
phases of recovery is that there is a level of suffering that you either suffer the debris of your unwanted addictive behaviors or you suffer through some of the the madness of recognizing that you don't know how to care well for yourself and i think that's you know the the importance of community reaching out to a friend to be able to name i'm not well <laughs> today mm-hmm. um and what are we doing in that? Well, the, the brain is actually naming the emotional life and experience. And that's what really good parents do. That's what uh, many of us who are addicts uh, have missed is uh, a really attuned caregiver that sees uh, our heartache. So when you think about middle school, uh, when you think about just any prototype of hell that you have been through, uh, who saw you? Who cared for you? Who noticed uh, that your face had changed? And that's that's a big process of recovery is actually seeing your face uh, and regulating and bringing kindness to difficult emotions that come up within us. Mm. You know, I, I can't help uh, uh, ref- but refer to my own experience. And I remember how healing it was to uh, enter a, com- a community, a recovering community, where it was safe to name emotions. Being raised in a home where uh, you weren't allowed to feel certain emotions and where we sometimes got these dissonant messages like, I'm not angry. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very dissonant message. The power of sitting in a room with a man who says very softly, I am so angry. Uh, The freedom that comes from, oh, it's okay. First of all, it's okay that he's angry. It's okay that he's saying angry, that he's angry. Perhaps I'm angry and perhaps it's okay for me to name it. Um. For me, it was so healing, necessary and powerful for me to have the support, the social support of other people who say, who gave me permission to uh, name my emotions. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah. Not something I ever would have been able to pull off by myself. It's so beautifully said. Yeah. And I think that's that's the process of maturity is to be able to get a sense of this is my emotional life. And most of us just uh, are not prepared uh, to engage our emotional life well. So, so glad that you had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Jay, do you think it's easier sometimes for people to focus on the moralism or the behavior than it is to this is probably a rhetorical question, but then it is to go down this road that you're talking about, about being integrated and understanding our emotions and our stories and our, and naming the things that are going on. Because so much of the time when, when sex or sexual behavior or sexualized acting out, whatever it is, is going on, the, the response to the individual is, is about the behavior, about a moral approach as if, um, some code of ethics would have helped him <laughs> or her. Yeah, you know, if I had only known this was, you know, against my values, I would have not engaged in it. You know, I mean, if, of course they are going against something that they probably um, value in a in a way that is incongruent. But can, how do we help people not immediately jump to moralism when they're dealing with this in their in their relationships? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that that's the every addiction really needs to be honored uh, before it's let go of, before Mm. uh, 
And so that that sense of, you know, for a lot of my clients, uh, they grew up maybe in a in a Christian home where they saw their mom, their dad, uh, it, at least on the outside, try and have it all together. And yet there was something about their control, something about their rigidity uh, that they knew was full of hypocrisy. Well, one of the reasons why something like pornography is going to appeal to you know, an adolescent girl or boy in that structure is that it actually gives them a, a place to escape the rigidity of their family. Uh, so if everything is under surveillance, they want some realm, some plot of the earth where they can uh, have their own way. And so I think that's what we have to kind of step into is, you know, how how did you develop your addiction? Because every addiction has uh, a sequence, a ritual, a process, even a beauty to use that word to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, as you begin to step more into uh, how did my addiction get created? And it wasn't just, uh, you know, to be immoral. It was actually uh, used for virtuous purposes, which was to escape uh, the tyranny of something really rigid. Mm-hmm. I still remember after, you know, just discovered your book and I first started uh, mugging people around me uh, with the insights, telling them they had to read the book. The line that captured me right away, I probably didn't quote it correctly, but I gave it to everybody was, you got to read this book. This guy says that it's when we're acting out that we're being the most honest. To me, that was such a revolutionary idea. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, well, I mean, when you look at the the you know, if you were a golden child or if you were something of the you know the the black sheep in your family, uh, you know, the, I would much in a way it, working with a black sheep uh, is so much easier than working with a golden child. Why? Because they they are actually honest about their life. They're willing to light. Uh, their hair on fire. They're they're willing to blow up the house in mm-hmm. order to tell the truth. And so I think that's where we have have to honor that maybe our addiction is actually trying to to make something known. It is a clarion call uh, to get us to contend with the stories that have actually informed why we pursued that addiction to begin with. Well, that's an inter- that's an interesting yeah. thing, Jay, because I remember yeah. telling my parents about my. Um, my alcoholism, uh, alcohol abuse. And I was the golden child, the family, you know, uh, kid. And, um, and I felt so disloyal to them mm. by telling them my painful struggle that was so secretive. Um, and it, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. It and, that's, just, and that's what sets us free is the ability to tell the truth. So right. that's, of the addiction for you was in in part uh i'm tired of living a lie exactly yeah yeah well uh this conversation could go on forever but unfortunately we are running short on time the book again is unwanted uh how sexual brokenness reveals our way to healing by jay stringer it's available on amazon and the finer bookstores everywhere uh 
And Jay, what's the best way for listeners who want to contact you directly, either for purposes of an intensive or to explore the other resources that you have developed? There's an online course. There's some other stuff. What's the best way for them to to get in touch with Jay Stringer? Sure. Uh, just real briefly, uh, David and Nate, thank you so much for having me on. Mm, yeah, thank you. Your yeah. ability to be playful and honest about uh some of the the darker matters of what we all have gotten into is just, I think it's so stunning and so rare. Uh, so thank you for just your commitment to, to grow beauty uh, in our lives instead of just trying to contain and stop something. So yeah. it's so refreshing. Thank you. Uh, the best way to get a, in touch with me would just be uh, jay-stringer.com. And there's a lot of resources there from, you know, an online course to a sexual behavior self-assessment. So if you're curious about what your sexual fantasies or behaviors might reveal about your life, uh, that's an assessment that will basically just get you into, it's about 160 questions and it will give uh, men and women compass headings with regard to what stories and themes are driving their unwanted behaviors. Uh, and then other articles and whatnot are also on that site. So, Fantastic. It's great. Well, thanks again. Thanks uh, so much for your tireless, inspiring work. I'm glad that you've gotten uh, 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 that your, you know, life that was going 90 miles an hour was purposefully, I want to say, purposefully interrupted by a, by a higher power, as mine was. You've had a time of reassessment to re-engage, you know, uh, refocusing. I'm glad you've gotten some family time. And I trust that uh, your influence is only going to grow as the months and years pass. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. All right. Stick with us, listeners. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Nate, I love getting to talk to Jay. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I so appreciate his approach and his ability to take a subject like uh, sexual compulsivity and sex addiction, um, pornography, all this stuff that people uh, find difficult to talk about, and he shifts the lens and the and the spotlight into the areas of causality and not just uh, you know the the moral right and wrongs and shame and um, the nastiness that we get so preoccupied with very often in in conversations about that. So I loved uh, love his book, love his work. I'm, I'm so grateful to him for getting to be with us today. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a hey, great, great conversation. We have, a, we have a new sponsor on the show. We right. actually, we have a sponsor. <laughs> we have a sponsor. It's, yeah. it's we, unbelievable. Yeah, we do. It happened. So we can thank, this. we can thank our listeners, our listeners who've been sharing the podcast with their friends, talking about it. The audience has now grown to the point where we have attracted the attention of a sponsor and we don't just accept any sponsor. We did some hard work. Uh, background work on these folks. These are good folks with a good service. Tell us about our sponsor. Absolutely. We are grateful to um, be sponsored by 
uh, a online counseling service. Um, this is trybetterhelp.com, and this is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Uh, some people think we're saying uh, better health, and it's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, trybetterhelp.com. And this is an online counseling service. And if you're in an area where uh, perhaps uh, you, your counseling uh, resources may, may not be as uh, plentiful as in other places, this is a great resource. Um, it's also a, a, an affordable alternative. Um, you know, the things in your life that are going on, uh, anxiety, depression, things that you're experiencing, fear, uh, you know, what, what you're, what, what is, what is holding you back in your life? These folks are licensed professional therapists and they are there 24 hours to communicate with you. Um, it is not a crisis line. It's not a self-help line. It's a professional counseling service done securely. Um, they're HIPAA compliant. Uh, there's a broad range of expertise of counselors. Uh, the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room like in traditional therapy. Um, BetterHelp is committed to facilitate a great therapeutic match so that they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Um, it's affordable uh, and the traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Uh, BetterHelp wants you to start living happier today and they're there to help you do that. Now, here's the catch, folks. Uh, if you will, when you go to BetterHelp, uh, go to trybetterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, trybetterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, and you will get a 10% off on your first month of Try Better Help services. And we will uh, also get to know that our podcast is uh, helping you find resources. So when you when you log on, go to trybetterhelp.com slash positive sobriety and take advantage of this opportunity. It's about 500,000 people uh, taking charge of their mental and emotional health through this service right now. So uh, let us know what you think of that and uh, please uh, give it a try. That's awesome. And of course, we always want to hear from you directly. So anytime you have a thought, an inspiration, a criticism, a correction, an encouragement, drop us a line at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been a great day, a great conversation. Uh, even though I can't see your face or give you a hug, David, it's good to hear your voice. Oh, likewise, Nate. All right. Until next time then, friends, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we're your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 